Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. My guests today are Catherine Gillen, Adriana Santos, and Catherine Bomero Santos. Kate and Adriana are professors in the English department at A&M San Antonio, and Catherine Santos at Trinity University, also in San Antonio. Today, we'll be discussing the two-part anthology titled The Bard in the Borderlands, an anthology of Shakespeare appropriations in La Frontera. Bienvenidas a este episodio. Can you each tell us a bit about yourselves? Sure. Um, my name is Catherine Vera Santos, and I'm an assistant professor of English at Trinity here in San Antonio. And I also co-direct our Humanities Collective, which is an organization that promotes humanistic learning and inquiry at Trinity and in San Antonio. I'm originally from Massachusetts, and I went to school in New York, and I've been living in Texas for the past eight years. Hi, I'm Adriana Santos. I am a... Um, San Antonio native. I grew up here and I went and got my doctorate in California at UCSB. Came back here and just earned tenure, so I'm an associate professor. Great. Thank you. <laughs> um, here at Texas A&M San Antonio. Hi, my name is Catherine Gillen and I teach English at Texas A&M University San Antonio and I also chair our Department of Language, Literature and Arts, which is really exciting because it includes Spanish and the arts as well as English. I grew up in Vermont actually, but I have lived here in San Antonio for the last 11 years, I think. So I've been here for a little while and I really love it here. So the four of us, uh, one is a native from San Antonio, and then the three of us are, are well, I'm the newest <laughs> to San Antonio. You're, uh, you're all honorary San Antonio. Right, now. right. <laughs> well, tomorrow I get my driver's license from uh, Texas, so officially, right, I'll be <laughs> Tejana. Um, I have to say that I find this anthology and project fascinating, especially when we think about how a Eurocentric text deemed as classic and canonical, has been adapted to reflect border identities. Tell me about your own positionality and participating in this work. Well, thank you so much, Elena, for having us today. I really appreciate being able to be on this podcast. I'm so um, honored, and I, I love it. I've listened to most of the episodes. Um, um, being from San Antonio and not being a Shakespearean, this project for me was... New, but in a sense, um, really kind of took me back as well to my days in middle school and high school and my first encounters with Shakespeare. Um, and I think that, you know, I have that perspective coming in, uh, being a Mexican-American, being someone who's from sort of like the top of the, <laughs> the border maybe or the north, northest, northernmost point of the border um, and how I kind of am approaching these texts as well. And also my birthday is the Ides of March. So I think I was always meant to kind of be um, in this project. <laughs> we just figured out yesterday. Um, and I think that, you know, reflecting 
border identities for students, especially considering in Texas, we have, you know, over 50% now of um, K through 12 students are Latino, Latina OX. It's so important for us to be able to adapt curriculum for them and to um, have stories that really reflect their experiences. So that's where I'm coming from. Thank you so much, Elena. We're very excited. I just wanted to echo Ariana's thanks because we're so excited about your podcast and we're all big fans. So it's an honor to be here. Um, yeah, so I think my, like, I come to this project um, as, yes, a white Shakespearean who moved to Texas from the Northeast. And I think when I first started teaching here at Texas A&M San Antonio, I was sort of wondering, like, kind of what am I doing, right? Like teaching Shakespeare to mostly Mexican-American students. And I also found that the students had really interesting and creative, innovative responses to the plays as well. So I was learning a lot from students and I was also kind of reflecting on my own positionality and sort of the work of teaching Shakespeare and the ways in which it can often like replicate kind of white and colonial ways of thinking about the world. And so I was really excited to have the chance to collaborate with Adriana first in 2018 to host a symposium here, a Latinx Shakespeare symposium. And Katie um, Santos also so joined us and gave a really wonderful presentation at that symposium as well. So from there, we started really thinking about what can Mexican-American studies and Shakespeare studies say to each other, and how can we learn more about the ways that theater practitioners and teachers in the borderlands are kind of dealing with Shakespeare, but also speaking back to some of those white and colonial ideologies and ways of knowing. And I'll echo the thanks for having us here, Elena. It's an honor to be on the show. Kate and I actually have a very similar trajectory in that I too came from the Northeast as a white Shakespearean to South Texas. My first job was at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi, where I was also teaching at a Hispanic serving institution. And I had a background in English and Spanish as an undergrad, and I kept thinking about the interaction of those two languages in the early modern period. And I wrote a dissertation that was about migration and identity and language, which I thought made me a good fit for my job in Corpus Christi, and it did. But once I started teaching students and talking to my students in that context, I realized that that wasn't far enough into the dialogue. And I too was asking like, Kate, you know, what am I doing here teaching Shakespeare? What does Shakespeare mean in this region? What is the history of Shakespeare? Um, and the year before Kate and Adriana hosted their symposium, I had brought our colleague Ruben Espinosa from UTEP to AM Corpus. And these, seeing my students react to the kinds of questions he was asking really energized me to start asking more questions about who has been engaging with Shakespeare and how. And then I connected with Kate and Adriana and promptly moved to San Antonio. The two are not related, but to I like join to us. Think that they were. <laughs> Um, and I'm really glad to be in the same city working with them on this project. Yes, San Antonio has a way of bringing us together. That's good. <laughs> I like hearing that. The description of, of this first volume tells us that Chicanx and ind indigenous theater makers have been repurposing Shakespeare's place, place to reflect the histories and lived realities of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and to create space to tell stories of and for La Frontera. Where does the need to adapt Shakespeare come from? That is, what do you see as a conversation or what are the shifting or disrupting ideologies that, ideologies that these plays want to bring to the audiences? 
I think that's a really good question, Elena. And, you know, coming to this from a Mexican-American studies background, I have my PhD in Chicana and Chicano studies. Um, those were questions that were really important to me, too, to discover. And the very first um, production of Borderland Shakespeare that I witnessed was with Kate. We drove down to Far Texas and saw a production of um, an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet by Ceres Jaime Magaña at the Far Community Theater. And it was a really beautiful production called The Tragic Corrido of Romeo and Lupe. And it was narrated by a corridista, by a singer. There was lots of music. There was even rap. So there was a lot of like um, genre bending within it. The production was about 50% in Spanish and 50% in English. And it really reflected um, kind of a, you know, a, a cross historical, geopolitical kind of um, understanding of far and the border and the Rio Grande Valley, and just the ways in which colonialism um, overlapping in different uh, time periods affects that region and continues to. The theme for that year for all of the plays at the Far Community Theater was water politics. And so um, it was about the river, it was about the land, it was about um, the history of uh, labor activism and protest. So it really does reflect um, a Chicana and Chicano sensibility, while at the same time, you know, adapting this play, Romeo and Juliet, that is um, seen to be so um, like a draw for the community. So I think that Pedro Garcia was really interested in adapting something that could bring in uh, different types of audiences. And it was clear that um, they were playing to the community there in FAR. Yeah, I completely agree. I think so much of it comes from the ways that Shakespeare is so canonical and taught in high schools, performed in community theaters. And so many people are familiar with Shakespeare, but there's also this desire to kind of write back to Shakespeare, to write oneself like into the stories, to do it in a way that resonates with one's own culture and also the cultures of the community. And so I think there's this you know, since I know Edith Villarreal, who is the author of The Language of Flowers, really felt that she wanted to create opportunities for her Mexican-American and Latinx students to do Shakespeare, but in culturally relevant ways, because there's so much pressure for theater students in particular to perform these like white-centric roles that don't always like reflect their identities. And so The Language of Flowers is this really beautiful play set during Dia de los Muertos. So Feliz Dia de los Muertos to you all today. <laughs> um, and um, are you supposed to say that on podcasts? <laughs> to say what day it is. Yeah, we're recording this on the first day of Dia de los Muertos in 2022. <laughs> for posterity. And um, it's set during Dia de los Muertos, and it's an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. And the characters are Mexican-Americans, and the Romeo figure is an undocumented immigrant from Michoacan. And Juliet's parents, or her father specifically, objects to that um, you know, union. And so the violence um, of the play and of the militarized border and of the need to assimilate is what really disrupts their relationship. But um, there's also a lot about the indigenous um, you know, kind of rituals and ways of thinking and spirituality that informs Dia de los Muertos that also serves a kind of healing function in the play and allows them to be reunited in the afterlife, for example. And so I think there's just this strong, you know, need to kind of reckon with Shakespeare, who plays such a large role um, in the culture, um, and also just to create opportunities to tell more, um, you know, Mexican-American and indigenous stories. 
Yeah, and, and speaking of indigenous stories, another Romeo and Juliet adaptation that we've been thinking a lot about is a play called Kino and Teresa by James Lujan, who's a Taos Pueblo playwright. And what his play does is it sets Romeo and Juliet in the aftermath of the Pueblo revolt in the Spanish Reconquista 12 years later. I think what that play offers is a hard look at the fact that the histories of the borderlands are contemporaneous with the composition of Shakespeare's plays. So Romeo and Juliet was published one year before Juan de Oñate established the colonial province of Santa Fe. Mm. So what happens if we look at Romeo and Juliet through that lens, through the lens of that history, which is lesser known in many ways than Romeo and Juliet? And in that play, the division between the Romeo character and the Juliet character is racialized. She is from the Spanish conquistador and settler um, contingent, and Romeo is him, or Kino in this case, is from Pecos Pueblo. And ultimately, the lover's story is not the thing that's going to resolve the colonial conflict. And we leave the play with a sense that there is not a resolution. Mm -hmm. um, and Romeo's mother, or Kino's mother in this case, uh, is a voice of indigenous resistance who speaks after the two central characters have died and, and the promises that she will continue to resist. Right, right. Um, I really like what you're, you know, the description of the plays that you're given us because I can see, right, the uh, maybe students or even the production when it's, when it's um, with, you know, with the gente, how that might capture them, you know, how might they um, identify with, with a familiar story, maybe. Um, and I really think that having that sort of connection to land, like you said, Adriana, is so key, right, to understanding where the play is, who the audience is, right, in that particular moment. So, um, so yeah, I mean, and I think of our students, obviously, as, as they engage with, the, with this uh, text and stories. Elena, I so appreciate you bringing that up. In um, the tragic corrido, instead of a rose smelling as sweet, it's a noche buena. Mm. And it's just a really beautiful reflection of um, the border region. And so I, I thank you for noticing that. Right, right. I think, yeah. So I can't wait to like read them and maybe see them <laughs> at, so, at some uh, point. Um, so you is described a little bit how this place are negotiating colonial power, um, you know, and just on the brief descriptions that you're giving us. But how do you think this place also are envisioning this um, socially just future for, for our communities? Many of the plays really radically rewrite Shakespeare's original in provocative ways that really challenge some of the colonial ideologies. So one of the plays, for example, La Comedia of Errors, is a rewriting of the comedy of errors. And there's a figure called La Vecina, who is a neighbor who knows all of the gossip that's going on and provides commentary. And the neighbor figure, whenever anything sort of colonial or violent happens, she interjects, right? And she's like, what's going on here? Or what's wrong with being Mexican? Or what, you know, she has this sort of like sense that she's, um, you know, providing a critical eye that's 
calling out some of what happens in the original play. Um, and she's also depicted as a member of the audience. And so I think it's really encouraging the audience to like look at canonical texts mm -hmm. and to say like, hey, what's going on here? What do I want to say from my perspective to challenge this? And at the end of the play, she kind of rallies the community to come together to resist a potential deportation to say like we shouldn't have to um, you know, deal with this in, in our communities. So I think the plays in general are really thinking about how can we like open up space within these really canonical plays that lots of people know to like create new futures and do that work, that kind of decolonial de work of thinking about like how um, indigenous Chicanx like ways of life um, are thriving, surviving, right, amidst colonial structures and to like think about ways to continue to resist those kind of, um, that like white violence, right, that we do see in Shakespeare's plays. Another great example of a play that envisions a socially just future is Herbert Seguin's as El Henry, which is set in 2035 in the aftermath of a pandemic, not this pandemic, it was written before COVID-19. Oh. But what is really exciting about imagining a history play as a future play is it has embedded in it this idea of looking forward and it's set in Atzlan, right? So there is this kind of future homeland reclaiming that happens in that play within the genre of Shakespeare's English history play. Yes, I think that um, in addition to the legacy of Shakespeare that we are mentioning, um, these plays are really rooted in a tradition of Chicano theater. Um, potentially, you know, you could trace these plays all the way back to the United Farmworkers and um, Teatro that was founded by Luis Valdez. And, you know, most of that history really attends to social injustice and to calling attention to oppressive social systems. And I think that, um, you know, these plays are not art for art's sake. These plays are um, doing a specific kind of work that calls attention to issues that are still alive and relevant, but it's doing it in a way that, um, you know, is, is really renegotiating um, the Shakespeare and so I, that's what I am fascinated by myself. Um, it's not just like, how are these plays doing Shakespeare, but um, how are these playwrights taking their uh, already trained and um, activist sensibilities and applying them to what is maybe perceived as universal, um, but is really made more specific and more um, relevant for people who live in borderlands contexts. I have to say, I love the idea of having Avicina in the play and, and um, playing with the idea of being chismosa, right? Oh, yeah. Gossip, because, um, you know, the gossip can be also what saves somebody, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the information you gather, that person that knows all the chisme from the, from the community is also the one that can potentially set the record straight about an issue or something that happens, right? And so to me, within you know, so this feminist lens, I think that character is very important to saving, you know, community, saving um, or um, challenging those um, maybe colonial ideals or, you know, Justice, really. Yeah, so. I really agree. It's, it's turning that whole idea of los icona or, um, 
you know, Sinvergüenza or even Llorona, who shows up in a lot of these plays and really um, turning them into these kind of uh, activist right. figures. It is, <laughs> in a way. Great. Um, so I know this might be hard for all of you, but can you share briefly a favorite play or approach in this first volume? Well, it's very difficult to choose a favorite because they're all so um, wildly creative. And some of them, you know, I've seen my students come to tears over hearing their language and um, positionality represented in these plays. And I think that one of the ways I've seen it be really um, impactful is through Ophelio, which is a rewriting of Shakespeare's Hamlet's, Shakespeare's play Hamlet's character, Ophelia, who tragically um, dies by suicide, uh, by drowning in the play. And in this modern adaptation, Ophelio is a um, Latino survivor of sexual assault who lives in Houston. He's a college student and he is queer and he's assaulted by um, somebody who holds power over him, a teaching assistant in that educational system. And so I think in this case, it's really calling attention to issues of um, rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, it's doing it through a lens of LGBTQIA or QT BIPOC activism because it was also produced um, with a local activist group in Houston. And so I think that students can really connect to these experience of, experiences of being both disempowered, but then also seeing um, what beauty can come from the healing aspect of that and from telling one's story. And so I think that also uh, harkens back to this idea of oral histories or oral storytelling that is so important in indigenous and Mexican-American cultures. One of my favorite plays is one called O Romeo by Olga Sanchez Saltbite. And this play kind of takes a different approach in that it imagines Shakespeare as a character. And it's also set during Dia de los Muertos. And Shakespeare's about to die in the play. And he's also writing a play about colonial Mexico. And so in it, it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet story, but it's... Um, a story between a conquistador and um, a Mexica princess. And so it's um, thinking about the ways that Shakespeare is trying to kind of like appropriate Mexica culture, while also thinking about the ways that he himself benefits from learning about the indigenous spirituality behind Dia de los Muertos. So um, Ham, Ham, sorry, Hamnet, uh, Shakespeare's deceased son, um, died very early, prematurely, and, um, and in, in real life and in the play, um, Shakespeare and his um, housekeeper, who's a Spanish woman whose brother is a missionary, so that's why she knows about Mexico, um, they build an altar and um, Hamnet, Shakespeare's son, uh, like the spirit of Hamnet comes to visit Shakespeare and also so do the spirits of many of his characters, some of whom want to burn his plays because they feel that they were misrepresented, like Lady Macbeth <laughs> and Richard III. And so in any case, though, it's like a sort of funny... Um, kind of lighthearted story in some ways. It's like making fun of Shakespeare, who's sort of culturally inept. He's like learning Spanish and doesn't speak it very well. And it's like really funny, but it's also like dealing with some of these serious issues, right, of cultural appropriation, um, 
as well as like colonialism itself, right? So we see the violence that does, um, you know, that shaped colonial Mexico, right? As well as the persistence and resilience of indigenous people there. And so it's just a really great play. It was devised collectively with a, you know, a whole cast, a predominantly Latinx cast. And um, they're just like really, it's like funny, but also like I really like the way it kind of like takes Shakespeare down a peg. <laughs> yeah, and it's multilingual and it makes a lot of pop culture references. So I think audiences potentially could really connect with that one too. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that Ofelio was written by Josh Innocencio. Mm -hmm. So the other play that I'll highlight from volume one, because I think we've talked about the others, but not this one yet, is Hamlet, El Principe de Denmark, which was adapted by Tara Moses, who is herself a citizen of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. Um, and this play too is set in colonial Mexico. It's bilingual and it was performed um, as part of a Dia los Muertos celebration in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it imagines the conflict at the center of Hamlet as one between colonizers and indigenous people, though the two languages in the play, English and Spanish, sort of map onto those identities um, the way that they do in contemporary culture as well. And one of the things that's fascinating about Hamlet's dilemmas, his question about to be or not to be is that it becomes a bilingual soliloquy. <laughs> and this really maps onto a larger tradition in Borderland Shakespeare where that very soliloquy, to be or not to be, becomes an opportunity for Borderlands artists, whether they're performance artists, theater artists, or poets, to think about the fracturing of identity, the split between worldviews, the division that happens with languages, whether they're speaking Spanish at home and English in school. So we have been very excited to think about what this hyper-canonical figure of Hamlet, mm. who has been made to stand in for humanity itself, right. can offer. Um, and the other example that I would tie um, Tara Moses's play to is um, performance artist Guillermo Gomez Peña, who wrote and mm -hmm. continues to rewrite a poem called El Hamlet Fronterizo, mm -hmm. where he imagines himself straddling the border where San Diego and Tijuana meet on the beach and asking himself to be or not to mm. be, but also to think about who has the right and who is granted the right to ask those questions when issues of citizenship are still at stake in right. a place as fraught as the border. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, just to bring it back also to the pandemic, I remember when to mask or not to mask was going mm. around the internet. And so Shakespeare is used in a lot of ways to reference contemporary social issues. Right, right. Um, so if we're teaching this work, where do you think it fits best? Um, or should we think of them as border crosses, crossers too, right? Uh, we have them in the English department, Spanish department, Mexican-American studies. I, I don't know. Where, where do you think um, it fits the best? Or how do we engage with the sticks in different you know, classes? Or does it have to be a theater class? Does it have to be a class about Shakespeare? So you're, you're spot on with your question. These are border crossers. And, and what I think our collaboration represents is that we require so many different disciplinary perspectives to understand and unpack and honor these plays. So they belong in so many different courses. And I have taught them in so many different courses. Of course, I teach them in my Shakespeare courses, but I also teach them in courses on reading race or on multilingualism and literature. So we really hope that other teachers will see places to 
bring these texts into their syllabi, um, into their classrooms, whether those are college classrooms or high school classrooms. And we also think that there's a lot of opportunity for someone like you who teaches language and, and thinks about language learners um, or English language learners, bilingual students, to, to think about what happens when Shakespeare is not this representative of the English language. In fact, he is a multilingual playwright, and here are these multilingual play playwrights doing awesome things with Shakespeare. Yeah, I would also add one more place that I've been able to teach part of these plays is in mythology, because um, so many of them really delve into uh, Mexica mythology. Particularly, there are some interesting questions around Quil Shauki, the moon goddess, um, and the ways in which uh, her image or um, her story can also be incorporated in this love story of Romeo and Juliet. Students really respond well to these plays, so they're great to teach. So we really encourage y'all to teach them. And that was really one reason that we wanted to create this anthology, was to make the plays accessible to teachers. Um, I would say I've had a lot of success in Shakespeare classes, but also in core curriculum classes. And, and I think we've heard from high school teachers as well that they would like to include them in their classes. Students have really loved um, creating their own Borderland Shakespeare adaptations, inspired by some of these plays that we're collecting here. Um, some of my students, for example, did a, a film was a Merchant of Venice adaptation, and they had um, the Shylock figure was an undocumented immigrant and a money lender, like a payday loan uh, lender. And so they were working through issues of, you know, divisions between documented and undocumented immigrants, questions of like access to banking, those, those kinds of questions and it was a multilingual production and so they were really interested in thinking through the questions of like language and language access and do we want to cater to like monolingual audiences do we want to make sure that even you know people who don't speak Spanish can understand our play those kinds of questions and so it offered really a lot of opportunities to think through language politics as well as questions about you know the canon and writing back to it. Well, yeah, I definitely think that it could be, even if it's just one play to include in a course, right, um, as part of this, uh, thinking about Latino, Latino stories, Latino writing, right, um, how that can be incorporated. And I'm, I'm definitely going to look into, I, I'm still hung up on the Vecina one, <laughs> the comedy of errors, um, because I think that's, it, that's an important figure, but um, also to see how my students would connect to that. Um, so definitely looking into that for, for the future. So I know you were recently awarded the NEH grant to host a conference in the spring of 2023. So congratulations. Uh, first of all, I know that's a very competitive, um, but um, very well-deserved um, grant for, for, for this project. Can you tell us about this uh, conference? Sure. It's actually, um, thankfully, not until the spring of 2024. Oh, okay. So we have another we have another year. <laughs> but yes, we really encourage listeners to um, yeah look for look out for information about it because we're hoping to get people from a range of different backgrounds to come. And as Katie was saying, we really need many di interdisciplinary perspectives to understand Borderland Shakespeare. So we're hoping to bring together in borderlands and Chicanx studies, indigenous studies, theater studies, people who teach Shakespeare, as well as other, you know, forms of literature and culture, music, art, all kinds of things. There's so much um, going on here. And so 
yeah, we're hoping to host a conference and we're hoping to create, um, you know, a journal issue out of it um, to help people kind of better teach these plays um, and to like bring people together to talk about how we can do that and how we can perform the plays um, in the Borderlands as well. We're really hoping to do more of that work. Yeah, that's a, a great point when you're talking about bringing together people from sort of all walks of life because, you know, San Antonio is a real meeting place, always, you know, has been. And I think that um, we have this long tradition of celebrating music and culture and art here already. We have the uh, Tejano Conjunto Festival here every year. We have excellent artists. Um, the artist that did the cover for the upcoming anthology, Celeste de Luna, was just recently here on campus. She's from the Rio Grande Valley, mm -hmm. but now lives and teaches here in San Antonio. And her print work is just so reflective of these types of borderlands identities that mm -hmm. we're talking about. I encourage all listeners to look up her work. She's incredible. Um, she'll likely be running, you know, some sort of a printmaking or art making workshop at the conference. Um, and we're hoping that we'll get like local uh, theaters and theater troops to participate as well because um, we would love to really highlight the amazing work that's going on already that we're just trying to to really give more attention to. And I'll just add about the print one of the things that excited us the most about commissioning a lino cut print for our cover is that it is both an early modern art form in a way that books were illustrated in Shakespeare's time mm. and something that's so rooted in Chicanx art and art of resistance. So it felt like the perfect marriage of right. the, the approaches that we're bringing together in this anthology. Right. And so the first vol uh, volume is coming out soon. When is the, when is the date for that? Do we have one? March 2023. Okay, great. Um, and what's the timeline for the second volume? Hoping one year later in March 2024. That's okay. the goal. <laughs> I know. I know how books go. So <laughs> uh, let's hope for those dates uh, as well. Um, and so you're hoping. Um, what else do you, do you want to see from this work? Um, maybe. So you have a conference coming up in 2024. Um, are you hoping to also bring a full play production here in San Antonio or in the Rio Grande Valley? Um, is there, you know, any uh, project? you know, in the future for this? I think aspirational projects at this time, but the, the first thing we're gonna do when the book is out in early 2023 is host a book launch with the Latino Bookstore. That's uh, part of the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center with Tony Diaz, the Libro Taficante. Um, and then we hope that once this anthology is out in the world, that it will become a tangible way for theater makers to hook into this project and to work with us or, or find ways to collaborate on these kinds of productions, whether it's here in San Antonio or in the RGV. We're also compiling some pedagogical materials to support teachers to work with the texts and to think through how to approach multilingual texts and multilingual classrooms and do culturally sustaining pedagogy and think about these texts on their own in addition to like as adaptations of Shakespeare. Yeah, and just I think that uh, many of the Latina OX um, theater makers and uh, actors are trained, they're classically trained in Shakespeare. And so I would just love to see, you know, what comes from giving them the space to adapt mm -hmm. these characters um, specifically for this purpose. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that it just really drives creativity um, that's maybe just already happening and can come together or inspire people to, to reinvent 
these characters in ways that feel um, more alive for them and for our communities. Right. Uh, so Katie, I, when you said after the first volume comes out, I, we're going to, I thought you were going to say rest <laughs> for a little bit, but yeah, but I'm, I'm happy to hear um, how every step of the way you have thought of ways to incorporate local um, artists and the Latino bookstore book is a great place to have this, you know, book lounge. Um, so, so congratulations with uh, on all this work. Anything else you want to add about? I don't know this work, uh, the plans. Uh, I don't know anything. Well, I'll just repeat something that our friend and colleague Jesus Montano, who works on young adult adaptations of Shakespeare, said during an event. Que viva Borderlands Shakespeare. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> que viva, que viva. <laughs> Mujeres, uh, gracias por esta conversación. Gracias. Gracias. A los <laughs> A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.